Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy, is a passionate and personal analysis of a culture in crisis, that of white working class Americans. The decline of this group, a demographic of our country that's been slowly disintegrating over 40 years, has been reported on with growing frequency and alarm, but has perhaps never before been written about as searingly from the inside. The author J.D. Vance tells the true story in this memoir of what a social, regional, and class decline feels like when you were born with it hung around your neck. J.D. Vance has become a chief explainer of this demographic in the national media as income inequality, class warfare, and the plight and anger of the white working class have become hot-button issues in the 2016 presidential election. J.D. Vance grew up in the Rust Belt city of Middletown, Ohio, the Appalachian town of Jackson, Kentucky. He enlisted in the Marine Corps after the uh, after high school, served in Iraq. He's a graduate of the Ohio State University and Yale Law School and has contributed to National Review. He's a principal in a leading Silicon Valley investment firm. He lives in San Francisco with his wife and uh, two dogs. J.D. Vance, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. I know you've been very busy um, over uh, in, in the national media, and I want to start there. The, the book couldn't have come out at a more opportune time. Um, and, and I want to read this tweet. By the way, it's at J.D. Vance 1, if people want to check out your Twitter account. Um, reminder, you say, about 40% of the country is still going to vote for Trump, and most of them are good people. Let's do better next time. What, what are you saying there? Well, the, the, the first thing I'm saying is that the, the folks who have been against Trump from the very beginning, and I, of course, include myself in that list, um, I, I think we're, there's going to be a tendency for people like me to gloat about how right we were about Trump and to ignore the fact that something gave rise to Trump in the first place, that he didn't come from nowhere. Um, I didn't expect the form that it would take, but I certainly saw the frustration and the alienation among the white working class, and I'm not surprised at all that somebody like Trump was able to take advantage of it. And so what I'm, I'm saying is, is, one, let's remember that a lot of these people are our fellow countrymen, sure, some of them um, who are going to vote for Trump are, are racist. Some of them are so-called deplorables. But I don't think that's true of most of them. And if the, the takeaway from the Trump nightmare is that half of the Republican Party or even more is just a bunch of terrible people, then I think we'll be playing into the very dynamic that gave rise to Trump in the first place. Do you think the uh, Trump phenomenon has, has shined attention, more shined attention on this demographic or diverted attention away from the, the white working class, the problems there? Well, yeah, I, I, it's probably done a bit of both. So it's definitely shined some attention. This is an area of the country that a lot of folks haven't thought a ton about in the past two or three decades. And obviously my book has benefited from the fact that people are asking so many questions about this particular group of people. So in that sense, it's definitely shining a light. But at the same time, it's very easy to caricature and sort of stereotype people, right? So it's 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 more it's it's easier to look at the demographic and say, you know, what do they think or what are they are they doing at a sort of drive-by level? It's much harder to sort of appreciate the complexity and the social disintegration that's going on to understand that a lot of these folks are are really just good people who are very frustrated and a little bit scared of the future. And and so in that sense, I don't know that all the attention has been totally positive or is added towards a constructive dialogue. You mentioned stereotype, but I, I wonder if you think the stereotype uh, stereotyping has, has has been exacerbated by this campaign. It's sort of two worlds, and you've mentioned living in two worlds, you know, Trump and anti-Trump. Uh, you could put those labels on them. And I don't know, it seems to me there's, there's a lot of stereotyping that's coming out of this campaign this season. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true, and that stereotyping probably goes in, in both directions. I mean, you know, I, I think that a lot of people back home sort of see these faceless elites that think of them as a bunch of dumb rednecks and, um, you know, judge them and, and, and don't share any of the same values. And I think that a lot of the elites see people as, um, you know, fundamentally one-dimensional, as, as driven by maybe one or two things and, and why they're voting for Trump. That's reflected, of course, in this, you know, what I think is somewhat a ridiculous national debate about whether Trump is driven by economic anxiety or racial animus, as if those are the only two factors that really can explain somebody's mm. voting behavior. Mm. And so the, 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 the worry that I have is that this is definitely added towards a sort of stereotyped understanding of our country. But again, it's, it's on both sides. I don't think that, that, that my hometown, uh, you know, the, the, the towns that are like it, are necessarily being super fair to why so many people are so repulsed by Donald Trump. 
it's not just a big media conspiracy that people don't like Donald Trump or that people are going to vote for Hillary Clinton or vote for neither of them. And and like I said, on the other side, I think that the media um, and a lot of the elite professionals on the coast have have been you know pr- pretty pretty unfair in how they understand Trump's voters and how they think of these these folks. They're again, I think, a lot more complicated and a lot more um, a lot better than than a lot of folks give credit for. I want to read a paragraph. This is from the conclusion of the book. Uh, <laughs> I laughed out loud in one sentence here. Uh, you say, sometimes I view members of the elite with almost uh, an almost primal scorn. Recently, an acquaintance used the word confabulate <laughs> in a sentence. I just wanted to scream, but you go on to say, I have to give it to them. Their children are happier and healthier. The divorce rates are lower. Their church tenants higher. Their lives longer. These people are beating us at our own damn game. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's exactly right. I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, I sort of recognize that that primal scorn with which I view the elites is, is, is a little bit one-dimensional, uh, but it is there, and it's something that a lot of people back home share, and I don't think it comes from nowhere. It's not purely an, an unjustified feeling to, to, to think that the elites are sort of judging you or to think that the elites are, are somewhat untrustworthy. I think that, that feeling comes at least partially from somewhere legitimate, um, but, but at the same time, I think as we sort of justifiably worry about, you know, how the elites view people like us, we should be mindful of the fact that at many of the things that we care the most about, you know, not wealth or power or elite credentials, but things like having happier families and having more successful marriages, the elites are right now beating us at those things. And so I, I hope that that recognition would cause a lot of people in my community to sort of be a little introspective and ask themselves, you know, why is this happening? Why are folks who we despise so much, why are they able to do many of the things that we value so much at an even larger degree than, than we do? And, and I think that, that's, a, that's a question that a lot of people in my community should be asking more. By the way, anyone who uses the word confabulate uh, does open themselves up to a bit of scorn. I would, I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> um, I want to um, maybe to have you take us through the, uh, the, the rise of your family. This is, you know, it's the American dream, right? It's upward mobility. And your, your grandparents lived this dream, I believe. It's, uh, you, you go on to say that this is, and then their grandson graduated from Yale Law Schools, working in Silicon Valley. It's, that's the simple story, you say, but the, the, the longer story is more complicated than that. But maybe starting with your, with your grandparents. Sure. So, so starting with my grandparents, they were born in eastern Kentucky coal country, extremely poor. Um, they moved to southern Ohio. They were, my grandfather was recruited by a steel mill in Milltown, Ohio, a steel mill still in operation to this day. And as, as he told me, there was effectively a choice for young men of his generation who were born in eastern Kentucky. You could either sort of scrape by, maybe work in the coal mines, or you could go north. You could move somewhere else and try to find opportunity in these industrial powerhouses of the Midwest. And so that's what my grandparents did. They moved to Ohio. My grandfather was able to learn, earn a pretty decent middle-class wage, wasn't wealthy by any means, but solidly middle-class in you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s Middletown, Ohio. And, you know, that, that's sort of the, the good thing. That's what should happen, I think, in, in our country where we value this idea that you can go from nothing to, to at least obtain some measure of material prosperity for yourself and for your family. But, you know, one of the things I, I think my grandparents learned and that I learned as I researched my family history for the book and just the social history of this region is that culture is a little bit stickier than, than just money, that you don't go from sort of dirt poor middle class overnight just because you gain a little bit of income, that it sort of takes a long time to, to adjust to some of the expectations of middle class life. And so even though my grandparents did very well, in a lot of ways, they struggled in Middletown, Ohio. They struggled to fit in culturally. The, the locals called them hillbillies. They didn't necessarily respect where my grandparents came from, viewed them with a little bit of mistrust. And, and so the, the, the real story was a little bit more complicated. And my sense is that a lot of the problems that came in our family from you know, the 70s onward, uh, they came in part from, from my grandparents' inability to quite fit in in the middle-class um, Ohio culture. Uh, tell me a little bit more about, uh, about the culture that your, your grandparents uh, came from. The, you know, the title of the book, Hillbilly 
elegy. And you, you talk with some pride about hillbilly culture, even though in some circles it's looked down on. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it, it's a culture that's very proud. People don't like to be looked down upon. Very loyal to their family. It's something that, you know, to this day, uh, you you can hear a relative talk about somebody and their family as if they, you know, had had, had won the World Series or the President of the United States. Like that's the level of pride that people talk about their family. Um, and and you know, but but everybody talks about their family like that, and everybody talks about. Uh, you know their their kids and 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 their grandkids with just this incredible pride. Um, it, it's a it's a little bit of an insular community, so you maybe don't totally trust outsiders. You think that people who don't talk like you are a little bit outside of the clan and maybe shouldn't be trusted. It, it's it's very um, it, it's very driven by by what might be called honor. So I grew up thinking that. If somebody insulted your mom or insulted your grandmother, then it was your duty to your family to sort of bring that that insult to the point of, of physical violence. And so, you know, we got in a lot of school fights when we were kids because of that. So that that that's all, you know, a good. Sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. I happen to be very proud of that that culture and the family that I grew up in, but I do think that it caused some problems in adjusting. So, you know, Appalachian culture is very built around these extended networks of kin, for example. So I'm extraordinarily close with my second, my third cousins, even to this day. And that that's something that when you're transplanted from that sort of kinship culture in eastern Kentucky where you're surrounded by dozens of relatives who love and support you, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in Middletown, Ohio, cut off from your extended family, but in, in, in a sort of nuclear family arrangement that's a, a much more insular and much more private than, than maybe the family arrangement that you came from, uh, that, that creates certain pressures. And I, and I think that's, that's the, the unfortunate stories of my grandparents' adjustment to adulthood is that back in eastern Kentucky, folks learned how to be good parents, good spouses, good grandparents from the, the extended network around them. You know, if you were a bad um, if you were a bad husband, then your your wife's dad would come into your house and tell you how to do things, and that didn't exist. Those same pressures didn't exist in in uh, in Middletown, Ohio, and so my grandparents, I think, struggled a little bit because of it. It took them a while to adjust. They eventually did adjust, uh, thank God, and uh, you know it it really benefited me that they eventually did adjust. But it took them a little while. Um, and so moving away from networks, that's uh, maybe a, a cultural trend that's that's contributed to a decline here yeah i i i think that's i think that's definitely true you know we and it's a double-edged sword because in a lot of ways of course this geographic mobility is very important it brings people in contact with good paying jobs that they wouldn't have otherwise had access to but the downside of it is that it does in some ways disrupt family networks and kinship networks that people you rely on i think that's especially true for lower-income Americans that really rely on these extended networks of kin. So, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, it's not necessarily that this move is good or bad. I think it has both its good, its good parts, but it also has its downsides. Um, I want to to go back a little bit to this uh, sense of honor that you said it's a big part of uh, hillbilly culture. Um, And you bring that on kind of a personal level. You've you had learned by this time that near the end of the book, you're driving in Cincinnati with, I believe, with your wife. Someone cuts you off in traffic, <laughs> does something, and your first impulse is to pull it behind him, get out, and teach the guy a lesson. Yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, I, I, I felt like this guy had really had really struck at something at my core, and I needed to, like you said, go out and teach him a lesson. Um, you know, of course, I didn't. I, I moved to open the door of the car, and my wife said, "You know, stop that! Stop being a, a lunatic!" And so I shut the door, and and uh, you know, did, didn't get in any any trouble, and didn't do anything bad, which of course is is progress. But you know, it, it's not something like like I said earlier. Culture can be a little bit sticky, so some of the habits and attitudes that you grow up with, they don't just disappear overnight once you find yourself in a new material situation or a new social class. One of the things that's interesting about this honor culture is, is one, I think it's probably shared among ethnicities that aren't Scots-Irish. I mean, it's, it's something that, that is at least partially maybe at the root of some of um, some of the inner-city violence in the black community, um, maybe, you know, may, maybe other cultures too. I've certainly heard, you know, Italian 
um, Italian Americans have have this sense of honor. So it's not necessarily something that's exclusive to Scots Irish folks. But if you think about it as from the perspective of a poor child, your honor, that sense of loyalty and duty that you have to your family, that sense that you've upheld that honor, it's one of the things that you have to really hang your hat on. You know, you don't have a lot of money, you don't have any fancy cars, you don't have things that, that give you traditional markers of success. So I think one of the things that you really overinvest in are the things that you can control. And one of the things that you can control when you're a six-year-old little boy is if somebody insults your mom, you can go home and say, I fought for your honor. And so I, I, I think that that's, that's something that's very important here. Um, and it's something, like I said, that doesn't just go away once, once you leave that community or once you grow up a little bit. You have to sort of train yourself out of that, that, that sense that you've got you've to sort of fight to protect what's, what's important about yourself. Uh, I want to continue talking a little bit about your grandparents, get on talking about your, your mother and, and, of course, your early um, life. Your, your sister, Lindsay, comes off as a heroine in, in the book. She seems like an extraordinary person, a very uh, stabilizing force in, in your life. Uh, first of all, your, your grandmother, who you called, you called them Mama and Papa? Um, uh, Mama and Papa. Mama and Papa, okay. Um, she, <laughs> very strong person. Um, at least once in the book, she, she threatens her own daughter, your mother, that, uh, if she misbehaves again, she's going to be looking at the, at the barrel of, of her gun for, for one example. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. I mean, that, that's who Mamma uh, was. She was in some ways, I think, built for a different time and place when she was first introduced to my aunt Wee's husband, Dan, she told him, I'm from Breath County where a woman isn't fully dressed until she has her gun. And that that's the sort of that's the sort of attitude that Mamaw carried around. She was very protective of her family. She was not afraid to, to, to do harm upon somebody if she felt that was necessary to protect the people that she loved. Um, I think at the end of the day that at least among her kids and her grandkids, she was more much more bark than bite. You know, she never spanked us. She never really laid a hand on me. Um, in, in a threatening way. But, you know, she always had that ability to turn things on. And when she did, she was incredibly frightening. You know, my, my friends, a lot of them, I think, heard the F word for the first time in my grandmother's home. A lot of, um, of my sister's friends and my friends were in- incredibly afraid of her. But she had this remarkable generosity of spirit and love about her. And that that's what really uh, stands out to me most when I think back on Mamma is that you know, she was a woman who was very poor, but would put you, purchase school shoes and school supplies for neighborhood kids who had even less than we did. Mm-hmm. Um, she really adored, even though she was sick and, and found it hard to take care of, of, of my sister and me, to take care of, of the, the, the kids in our generation who came later, she really adored her grandchildren. And whether it was in my life, really serving as a sort of surrogate mother, or you know, with my sister's kids, just serving as a, as a very important you know grandmotherly figure. She she had this incredible joy about her when she spent time around her grandchildren, and I think because of that, because she was simultaneously a little bit scary and very powerful, but also because she had this this love and generosity of spirit. She opened her home to me and my sister when a lot of times we have a stable home of our own to go to. And so the theme that sort of runs throughout the book is that whenever my own life took a very unstable turn and I needed someone to stay with, my grandma always provided that. And even later in, in, in my you know childhood, when I was probably 14, it got to the point where I just moved in with her full time. My sister had a, a very long stint of living with Mamaw full time herself. And, you know, that, that's just who she was. That was the sort of woman that she was, that even though she was sick and didn't have a lot of money, she was always willing to, to spend her extra time and cash taking care of two kids that she shouldn't have had to take care of, but she did. I want to talk a little bit about uh, masculinity in this culture. Through the lens of Papa, uh, your, your grandfather, uh, there was a there was an incident, many incidents in the book where, as you say, your life was very unstable. Your, your mother, unfortunately, had a problem with drugs uh, off and on. Um and um, a particularly bad incident had happened, and and your grandfather begins to cry. You say you'd never seen him cry before. In fact, you you couldn't couldn't even imagine him crying as a baby. 
Yeah, that that's exactly right. You know, he he was a, he had a very unique sense of masculinity, which is that you know men were supposed to take care of their families financially. Um, he he wasn't as interested maybe in the emotional part. He was not an especially emotional man, um, but he he really didn't think that men should cry. You know, I never saw my grandfather cry. <clears throat> it was just not part of of who he was, and. You know, there, there was an incident where, you know, my mom was actually arrested for domestic violence for this incident. But, you know, my grandfather had encouraged me to go with her. I remember. I don't know why. I don't remember why he encouraged me to go with her. But he said, you know, you really should go spend some time with your mother. And so I did. And, and what eventually happened is that she got very agitated. She began to drive the car very fast and she threatened to crash it and kill us both. And obviously, very traumatic incident for a young kid. I, 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 you know, she eventually stopped the car, and I got out and I ran, and and then the police were called, and then uh, that's how she was arrested. But I, I remember after I was picked up, I was sitting in the back of a police cruiser after they had carted my mom off, and Mamaw Papa and my sister came to pick me up, and we all went back home, and I just remember that as Papa left the room, um, he. Sure, I was laying on the couch, and he just sort of set his hand upon my my forehead and began to cry. And you know, even even thinking about it now, sort of brings me brings me close to tears because it, it was just not something that I had ever seen him do. It was this display of emotion and compassion that was very important. But I also think what was was sort of him letting it all out because you know he, he loved his daughter and he loved his grandkids and he, and he wanted them to be happy. He didn't want and living, of course, the life that they were. And so I, I really think that was sort of the moment where, where Papal let his guard down because, he, you know, he was just really, really devastated as all of us were. How representative do you think, um, you know, your grandparents, your mother are of, of this Appalachian culture and, you know, this this demographic? They, Your grandmother and grandfather had 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 this upwardly mobile dream. They had achieved it in some respects, didn't quite fit into the culture, but but at least economically, I think. And then, and then uh, you know, your mother, for one, had a, had a lot of problems and was co- sort of on the, the more of the downward slide. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's sort of important to say that, that I don't think that their experience is representative of, of all Appalachians by any means. Um, I, I do think that the sort of problems that existed in our family, if you look at the statistics, are relatively representative of a disproportionate problem, a problem that doesn't exist again in all of Appalachia, but does exist in Appalachia in a way that I don't think it necessarily exists in other communities. And not just Appalachia, you know, I, I'd sort of say the broader white working class community and even, and even further beyond that. So, so, so I, I think that, you know, what I, what I was trying to do you know, with the book is sort of say, you know, here are a set of statistical problems that have been documented by other people. And, and here's sort of what these problems feel like when and what they look like when you experience them very personally. And so, you know, the violence that was characteristic of our home, the addiction that was characteristic of our home, the sort of pessimism and frustration that I saw in our community, the, the difficulty in finding good middle class jobs by the time that I was coming of age. These problems are pretty broadly shared across the Rust Belt and across Appalachia. Let's take a break when we come back more with J.D. Vance. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy. The subtitle is A Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis. And uh, you are welcome to join the conversation here if you'd like at 800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraxis.gmail.com. More with J.D. Vance after this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. USU mathematician Nathan Gere understands challenges his students face as they tackle new math skills because he himself has worked on certain math problems for years. Gere says students get discouraged because they can't solve problems immediately. Getting stuck, he explains, is part of the learning process. To make math more accessible, Gere is developing three to five minute podcasts to acquaint students with new vocabulary and orient them to new material prior to class lectures. His goal is to help students more quickly grasp core messages and make math learning less intimidating. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. 
Details at usu.edu slash science. Utah Public Radio is partnering with the Utah Debate Commission to present several debates this election season. Next up, it's a debate featuring candidates in Utah's first congressional district. Republican incumbent Rob Bishop faces off against his Democratic challenger Peter Clemens. This debate will originate from Weber State University, and it's Monday evening beginning at 6 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're pleased to have J.D. Vance with us. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. Got uniformly uh, glowing reviews. It's a very, very timely book, of course, uh, with this presidential election uh, shining a spotlight on white working class America. Um, and J.D. Vance, in fact, has become a chief explainer of this demographic in the national media. As income inequality, class warfare, and the plight and anger of the white working class have become hot-button issues. Uh, the Vance family story be- began, hopefully, post-war America. J.D. Vance's grandparents were dirt-poor and in love, as he says. They moved north from Kentucky's Appalachian region to Ohio in hopes of escaping the dreadful poverty around them. They raised a middle-class family. Eventually, their grandchild, J.D. Vance, would graduate from Yale Law School. That's the simple story, but the real story, of course, as it always is, is more complicated. J.D. Vance, I just want to read this uh, paragraph from your introduction. Um, you, sure. you say that you, you mentioned, of course, that you got out, as we could say. You, you uh, graduated Yale Law School. You're in Silicon Valley. Um, but you say you want people to know what it feels like to nearly give up on yourself and why you might do it. I want people to understand what happens in the lives of the poor and uh, psychological impact that spiritual and material poverty has on their children. I want people to understand the American dream as my family and I encountered it. I want people to understand uh, how upward mobility really feels. And I want people to understand uh, something I learned only recently, that for those of us lucky to be live the American dream, the demons of the life we left behind continue uh, to chase us. Uh, the, the American dream is very powerful, right? And and um, but it can be very very disappointing if you try for it and 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 can't reach it. Yeah, that that that's definitely true. And I think that it can be a little disappointing if you try for it and reach it and and recognize that you know all of your your sort of problems don't go away just because you you know get an elite credential or because you have a nice job. I mean, I think one of the things that I've learned over the course of my life is is that the, the, the problems that existed in my family that I thought for so long I was going to work really hard and escape, um, that you never really escaped them. You know, you're, you're always sort of um, attached to where you came from and, and who you grew up with. And so, I, you know, the, the, what, what, I've, what I've realized about upward mobility, especially in a society that's sort of you know, riven by, by class distinctions as ours, is that very often it's it's not that you go from one class to another, but you sort of go from one class to this, this sort of in-between space where you don't quite you don't quite belong among the upper class. Um, you certainly feel more comfortable around the the family and the community that you came from, um, but it's it's you know it's always a sort of delicate dance. One of the markers you you get into talking about um, economic situation, economic habits. Uh, through Christmas, that was very interesting. So you 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 start where I'd like to start is is uh, you've made it. You've uh, you've graduated Yale Law School. You're working for a, a top firm. You got some money, and and you want to give back, right? So you you go out. It's a sub for Santa or Christmas Angel or some such program, and um, you cross a lot of gifts off your list. I think because of where you came from, right? Yeah, that that that's right. I mean. I, I, I remember, and I, I tell the story in the book of sort of standing, I believe, in a Walmart toy section, and you know, buying buying Christmas gifts for uh, an underprivileged, lower income kid. It was a it was a program that my firm did, and you know, a lot of the a lot of the gifts just didn't seem like the the sorts of things that I that I thought were especially useful or especially welcome for a lower income kid. So. You know, there was this very loud sort of musical toy that I was like, well, that would be really fun. But I remember that time I got a similar toy and I wasn't allowed to use it very much because one of my mom's boyfriends was very mean about how loud it was. Um, You know, one of the things that, 
you're encouraged to buy is sort of is, is pajamas, clothing, and things like that. And I remember thinking as I was shopping for pajamas that I had never worn pajamas as a kid, at least not to my recollection. I, I still to this day sort of think of pajamas as an elite adult indulgence, something that, uh, you know, just an extra piece of clothing to wear to bed when, you know, you could perfectly just as easily fall asleep in your jeans or in your underwear. So it, 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 it was this very interesting um, experience and continues to be an interesting experience to sort of go and one, be reminded of how lucky and fortunate I am in my own life, but also as I'm shopping for these toys to sort of be reminded of where I came from and the fact that, you know, shopping for Christmas gifts when you're lower income is sort of fraught with a lot of a lot of difficulties. And, you know, it, 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 it reminds me that Christmas time was always this extraordinarily stressful, stressful financial time for lower income families. And I, I often think about that and about how our approaches to gift giving when you're lower income, it's much different than when you're upper income. And I was I, this. I relate to, to to this. I you know I know families like this. Uh, you you know hardly have enough money to put food on the table. When it comes to Christmas, you really want to give your kids a a, a big Christmas. Uh, so you'll go into debt for it. That's your your mother would do that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There was this obsession with giving kids um, a nice Christmas. You know, with sort of scare quotes put around nice, because it was always about how much money did I spend on my kids this Christmas? And there was this weird sort of shame that, that, that lower-income parents tended to feel if they didn't give their kids an especially nice Christmas. And so this ritual that would always happen every Christmas, you know, you end up borrowing money from your parents or you borrow money somewhere else, or you do whatever you can so that you can sort of stock the Christmas tree with a ton of gifts at Christmas time. And it, what, what's so interesting to me is how that approach to gift giving contrasts with upper income people that I've come in contact. You know, I, I assumed that rich people sort of celebrated Christmas just like we did, um, but, you know, maybe with, with fewer financial stresses and, and so forth. You know, I figured that as soon as my aunt married my, my uncle, who, who had a little bit more money than we did, that they would just shower their children with these ridiculous gifts. The only thing that would be really be different is that they wouldn't have to worry about how they were going to pay the bills uh, in the new year when the bill came due. But it was actually a much different approach to gift giving than a lot of upper income uh, folks approach. So, so, you know, my my wife, who came from a, a sort of standard upper middle class family in San Diego, um, you know, she would often get books for Christmas. Um, my cousins, who who tend to do, um, who you know had a, a more materially comfortable childhood than we did. They never had as many Christmas gifts under their Christmas tree as we did when we were children. And it's so ironic, right? It's ironic both because if you think of the meaning of Christmas, it's not necessarily giving your kids a ton of presents. But it's also ironic because the people who have the most flexibility to spend on their children tend to spend less at Christmas time in contrast to lower-income families like mine. We're talking with J.D. Vance. He's author of the New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy. And you're welcome to join the program at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, I want to take uh, you, J.D. Vance, to the scene in the courtroom. Your uh, your mother's in trouble with the law, and you have to testify. But you talk there about the TV accent and, and how you relate to not the professionals in the in the courtroom, but but the other people there. It gets us into identity. Um, and I want to talk about uh, jobs as well. In your introduction, you you say that uh, a lot of economists say, well, we need to get people in this area jobs, but uh, you say it's not quite that simple. Uh, much more to talk about following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement. Online at utahhumanities.org. This week on This American Life, a journalist is given a phone number to call, and when she does... Hello. 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 Turns out the people on the other end of the phone are a group of hostages being held and tortured in a desert thousands of miles away. And then uh, he told me about their situation, that there were 29 to begin with, but that one had died. And then she tried to save them. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with J.D. Vance, author of the New York Times bestseller, Hillbilly Elegy. And uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. Very, very timely memoir. Uh, his, uh, his family uh, lived the American dream in, in some respects. His grandparents uh, were upwardly mobile. But then uh, his family experienced uh, problems, some of uh, those problems typical of, of what's going on among white working-class Americans and in Appalachia. And uh, these issues have come to the forefront in this uh, presidential election. J.D. Vance has uh, been pressed into service as a chief explainer of this demographic in the national media. We're grateful he's with us uh, here. You can join the conversation at 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So I want to get into the cultural differences. And um, in some respects, we like to think, J.D. Vance, that that we're all Americans, right? We're we're all unified. Um, But of course, we know that's not true. And it it just seems like those cultural divides are becoming bigger and bigger. And you're you're sort of positioned between two worlds here. Uh, So I wonder if you take us to that that scene. Your your mother has been charged, I think, after that incident where she, uh, you know, sped up the car and and threatened to, to, to kill you all. You're in the courtroom. The high-priced lawyer that your grandparents have uh, have uh, hired has uh, sort of not directly told you to uh, let your mother off the hook, but implied that that would be the best. Um, and then you look around the courtroom. I wonder if you first you could talk about the TV accent, the the lawyers and such in the in the courtroom there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I remember that there were a few other people in the in the in the a few other families in the courtroom, not just us. And it was a very simple hearing where, you know, he sort of stood there and, and I, I remember I I was sort of asked to you know, was was I threatened or not? And I remember that I told um I told the judge that I was not threatened because that's what my grandparents wanted. They didn't want mom to go to jail. I didn't really want mom to go to jail either. I sort of just wanted this this kind of national this this nightmare of this bureaucratic injection into our lives to end. And so so I, I, I was perfectly willing to sort of lie to the judge, but there was also this, this this interesting sense in which, for the first time, I felt like I was noticeably different from some people that were in the courtroom. And so, you know, everyone I remember, everyone there was was sort of like we were. At least everyone who was subjected to the court system, the other families that were sitting there and in sort of the waiting area and so forth, you know, they they were basically like us. They were white. They were working class. They didn't wear super nice clothes. Maybe. Um, they, 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 they had that, that feeling and that look of, of sort of stress and anxiety in the courtroom. And it occurred to me that everyone who was sort of running the courtroom, so the lawyer, the judges, there were other lawyers there, they all wore suits, they all spoke a different way. And it was the first time that I really picked up on something that, I, that I'll call TV accent, or that I, I used to call TV accent, which is the sort of neutral, clean accent that a news anchor has, but that no one in my family had. But, but it, it occurred to me that everyone that was actively running the courtroom that, that day, they all had TV accents, unlike us. And so, you know, it, it just sort, sort of serves to highlight that, <clears throat> you know, you go through this, this period in your life where you think that your family is the entire world, and then you start to recognize that the world is a little bit bigger and that there are people who are like you and then there are people who are unlike you. And that was one of my first real educations, that there was a pretty significant chunk of the population who was not like us, and that they tended to have maybe a little bit more financial and legal power than my family had. Um, and uh, you noticed you felt a kinship to some other people in, in the courtroom who were wearing not suits but sweatpants. You described them as having somewhat disheveled hair, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, absolutely. You know, the, the the other families who who were there, like I said, they they were like us. They were they were white. They were clearly not higher income. They didn't have the same clothes on that the the judges and the lawyers did. Um, you know, like 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 Mamaw, they, they they sort of wore t-shirts and stretchy pants, and that that's what they looked like. And um, they, they they just reminded me of us, the way that they were talking the way that they were dressed, but, you know, very, very subtly, I think the way that they, they conducted themselves, they were very understandably anxious about being there and about participating in this process. And I felt much more kinship with them than I did with the people who were, like I said, sort of running the courtroom process. Could that experience, another experience in the book stand as a metaphor then for our overall divide? Uh, I don't know if you felt 
uh, you know, any judgment coming from the professionals uh, at that particular point, but it does, does seem like elites tend to look down on people who, who grew up like you. And, and uh, I imagine people who grew up, you know, like you uh, maybe would resent that. There's a hurt, hurt pride. I don't, that's part of the divide. There, there is definitely a divide. Yeah, there, there is definitely a divide. I, I do think it is. it could be a bit of a metaphor for what's going on um, in, in contemporary American society where you have the sort of the, the, the upper-income people with nice suits, professionals who are you know, running the show in some ways, and you have the people who are subjected to their judgments and to their, their professional outcomes, uh, the people like my family who are on the other side of the divide. What's, what's so interesting to me, of course, is that even though that entire process, the purpose of it was fundamentally to protect me. Um, the judges, the, the health service agents that were involved in our case, those people were all there to help me. But at a very fundamental level, I viewed them as outsiders and I viewed them as sort of obstacles to overcome, as people to usher out of my life just as soon as they'd come in. I never really saw them as people who would really help me. And, you know, I, I never, you know, at least at that stage of my life, you, know, you mentioned the judgment that maybe professionals have for lower income or working class folks. I never felt that judgment as a child, but I wonder if that feeling of them being an outsider is something that, you know, I inherited from adults, and maybe those adults felt that judgment. They felt that condescension. So I, I, I do think that there's something really important to learn in the fact that, first of all, I was a working-class kid who felt a lot of kinship, not with the professionals in the courtroom, but with the people who were there for similar reasons. And second of all, that I, I, I mistrusted them, that I didn't feel like they were part of the same team as me. They were part of somebody else's team, and that I needed to get rid of them as quickly as I could. I think there, there, there's a lot to learn there about our current cultural and political moment. I wonder, your mother also could stand in, of course, very personal uh, to you and, and to her, obviously, but are uh, uh, the drug crisis that we're experiencing. Uh, um, I want to have you talk about a very poignant scene in the book um, where you, you graduate from Yale, you've, you've, you've uh, got a job, you've got some money. Now you're trying to navigate as an adult how to help your mother, um, and, and you end up at this, I don't know, cheap hotel, cheap motel, cheap apartments anyway, and you're, you're, you've decided I'm going to get my mama a room, right? At least I can do that. You're trying to navigate now the, the difference in the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, one of the things that, that writing the book, um, you know, that, that scene took place when I was sort of at the tail end of writing the book. And it, it also, because, because of that, the, the understanding that I developed of mom when I, you know, maybe was 2000. 2012, 2013, when I first started writing the book, was sort of as, as mom as a villain. I was very angry with her. I was very resentful towards her. By the end of the writing process, I had begun to recognize that the problems that mom subjected me and my sister to were in many cases not all that different from some of the problems that her parents subjected her to. And so I started to see her life in this broader intergenerational and cultural context. And so that, that gave me a, a lot of sympathy to mom. It gave me a lot of affection where there hadn't been before. And so this is, you know, right after I would graduated from law school, right after I was married, mom was in trouble because of drugs. She had, she had been kicked out of her home and she was homeless. You know, I mean, it, it sounds just incredibly stark, but she, she didn't have a place to stay. And so I, um, you know, I, I wanted to make sure she had a place to stay so that we could sort of figure out the situation. I thought that, you know, we'd give her a week in this hotel, we'd get her finances in order, we'd find out, you know, where 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 she could live more permanently, and then we'd sort of go from there. So I I went to, to this CD motel, and I tried to call them. I remember and leave. I was in Cincinnati, which is about a 45-minute drive from Middletown. And I tried to leave my credit card number with the the woman who was working at the, this this very cheap motel, and she wouldn't let me. She, she said I had to be there physically present to, to give them a credit card. And so I, I did, and I you know, made the 45-minute trip to Cincinnati, got mom in the, a room at this hotel. And I, I just remember thinking, my God, this is what I wanted to escape from. You know, my entire life, I've been working, I've been 
you know, I went to the Marine Corps, I went to law school, and, and I thought that I was escaping from something. And when I thought I was escaping from something, it was just this sort of motel that I was escaping from. It was an almost unbelievable scene when I got there. You know, very, very cheap roadside motel. I want to say it was maybe $125 or $115 for an entire week. Um, there were a couple of people in the parking lot. One of them was actually using drugs when I got there. I actually, you know, witnessed a guy shooting up when I got there. The woman who was working at the motel was incredibly, just, uh, just incredibly pitiful figure. She had this very, very low, sad voice. You could tell that she had been beat down by life. And I, I just remember thinking, you know, my, my God, I haven't really escaped from anything. You know, this is always going to be my my life and my my community and instead of you know instead of thinking that i should be getting out from it what i what i should be doing is trying to help and trying to do something a little bit more productive and and so that that that's that's what i did with mom and um that that you know hopefully hopefully it made a little bit difference you uh, i want to quote this Uh, this is at your graduation from yale law school um you said i was upwardly mobile i had made it i'd achieved the american dream but upward mobility is never clean cut. The world I left always finds a way to reel me back in. And I, when I read that, at least for the second time, it it, it occurred to me that it struck me as a metaphor for America. That that uh, you know that this is we've talked about the divisions, but the Appalachian white working class that that is us, right? That's part of us. Um, and and uh, so, if they're not upwardly mobile, if they're experiencing these pr- problems, then we all are. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And I, I think that we can only ignore those problems for so long before they start to, you know, rear their head and, and make themselves felt. And if this political moment means anything, I think it means that white working class Americans have felt incredibly left behind by a lot of different people for a long time. And they're just now finally starting to express that frustration at the ballot box. And, you know, like you said, you can sort of think that you can escape it. You can think that maybe because you live in New York or California or Utah that you're you're segregated from these problems. But at the end of the day, these are our fellow countrymen and countrywomen. These are fellow citizens. These are people who have not just the right to vote their frustrations, but they also have, I think, a legitimate claim to the fact that life hasn't been super kind to them. And we've, we've got to start thinking about how we can, one, show a little sympathy for, for these folks, and two, how we might even be able to, to start helping some of these problems. Because, you know, as, as I found out very personally in my own life, the, these things never go away. It's not about escaping. It's not about detaching yourself. It, it, it's, I think, about learning just how lucky you are in some ways, but also how responsible you are for, for these communities. One of the things that struck me, uh, you talk about how uh, economists say that uh, if we only had more economic opportunities in these areas, they only had better access to jobs, the other parts of their lives would improve as well. And then you go on to tell a a story from uh, New Haven, I guess, while you go into law school, and you're working in a place, and uh, a guy who you call Bob joined the warehouse, um, along with the the boss was uh, kind enough to also hire his pregnant girlfriend. Uh, they uh, didn't last for them, though. They had the job, but they didn't. No, they, you know, didn't work for them. Yeah, no, they, no, they didn't. So this is a, this is a tile warehouse, and it paid a, a pretty good income, and you know, not not something you could live on in New York City, but but plenty of money to live on in in Middletown, Ohio, and it provided steady wages, good health insurance, and so forth. And you know, most of the employees at this tile warehouse were very good guys. They worked hard. They did their jobs. They came to work on time. And yet, there you also saw the other side. You saw the people, and and this is you know what I'm talking about with Bob and his girlfriend, that they they didn't come to work on time. Bob would take half hour restroom breaks multiple times over the course of the day. He didn't do his job that well. He was very clearly unmotivated, and eventually, both both he and his girlfriend lost their job at this place while I was working there. And he sort of lashed out at the guy who fired him. He said, you know, how can you do this to me? Um, and, and it occurred to me when I, when I realized this, that this guy really suffered from a, a fundamental lack of agency. He didn't think that he had any control over his life. And it was an important story to tell because 
like you said, we talk about how these, these areas suffer from a lack of jobs and a lack of good wages, and I think that's very true. That's an important part of the story, but it's not the whole part of the story. One of the things I, I think that I, I try to drill down on in the book is that, yes, these areas have been hit hard by the decline of the industrial economy, but there are also a significant minority of people who are able-bodied, who could work, who very often choose not to, and importantly, who don't feel that they have control over their own lives. They feel like no matter how hard they work, they, they're not going to get ahead in the world. And even, you know, sometimes that, that feeling is very, very difficult to, 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 to eliminate, as, as I tried to highlight with, with Bob, who had every reason to think that he was fired for his own reasons, but refused to accept it. And that's a profound pessimism, right? Losing faith in, the, in any hope of upward mobility, American dream. How, how do we just have about a minute left? What, uh, how does that get reversed? Well, I, you know, in a minute, I, I don't think I have <laughs> all, all the solutions by any means. But I think it, it starts with two things. The first thing is that we have to recognize as a country that these areas are really suffering, that the people who live in them are suffering. And we have to think innovatively about policies that can actually go to them where they are address their concerns, address their problems, and hopefully give them better opportunities. The other side of it is that people in my community have to recognize that we, as churches, as community institutions, as individuals, as families, do have some role to play in reversing these very negative trends. And if we don't do it, if we don't start to take control of our own fate, I think that government will help, but it will never be able to help 100%. And uh, just the end here, I just want to repeat this tweet. I think it's uh, profound. This is from uh, J.D. Vance. His Twitter account, at uh, J.D. Vance 1, he says, Reminder, about 40% of the country is still going to vote for Trump. Most of them are good people. Let's do better next time. Uh, one uh, one step toward understanding is reading this book. Uh, it's a very interesting book, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, a memoir of a family and culture in crisis. The author, J.D. Vance, has uh, joined us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Uh, tomorrow, of course, we hope you'll join us uh, for uh, Behind the Headlines, our news roundup program. And then on Monday, we're going to have some fun. We're going to delve into the world of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, that's on Monday. Thanks for listening today. Say you stumble on a big pile of trash. The mother load. The biggest pile you've ever seen. And you think, what would happen if I dug up all that trash, cleaned off the mud? With the help of a brush. What would I find? A letter. A letter. Lost sayings of Jesus. A cow. The number of the beast. Genghis Khan. Big, bold, muscular men. This week on Radio Lab, we take dumpster diving to a whole new level. Join us Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio. Infrastructure is expensive. Roads and bridges, the big heavy stuff. And there's not always enough money to do what needs to be done. Well, it's kind of a reality that the public funding is limited. You know, so when we do do these public-private partnerships, do we have the benefit of the private funding being put into the initial capital costs? I'm Kai Rizdal paying for infrastructure in America next time on Marketplace. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.